This seems to be a phenomenon that's going to be exclusively tied to Gen X and older millennials, but the idea of children watching the same movies over and over again. Home video wasn't really a thing for older generations, and I think streaming has given too many options to Gen Z and the younger ones, although I might be wrong. It's definitely not the case for Toby, but yeah, for a lot of people in my age bracket, when we were growing up, you'd get a couple of movies that you would just drive everyone else in the household nuts by watching over and over again. And for us, one of those was Adam's Family Values, which we taped a VHS copy off of a network broadcast shortly after it left theaters. That's a very dated thing to say. We watched this a lot as we were coming of age, and it warped us, and it probably explains a lot about us. So while Adam's Family Values is probably not an important film in the history of film, it is very important to us personally. That being said, recent years I've seen the Addams Family being reappraised as aspirational, this particularly in the little echo chambers on social media that I'm a part of. Lots of people talk about how Gomez and Morticia are now relationship goals, and the Adams's steadfast refusal to hide who they are is often seen as a metaphor regarding marginalized groups, particularly queer people. So in addition to talking about how the film has affected us, we're going to be delving into uh, how the Adams Family is interpreted by lots of other people who do not fall under the typical explanation of family values. My name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. Joining me on this episode is my brother Sylvan. Hello. And yeah, I, I was toying around with the idea of occasionally bringing in a third guest to talk about this, but Sylvan was mandatory co-host for this one. As much as this movie has affected me, this movie has defined Sylvan. This is one of the two films that I haven't bothered to re-watch before starting again, because Sylvan has his shit memorized. Yeah, I mean, I genuinely do not know if this movie, like, just reinforced what was already there or created something in me, but it hit me just right when I was about, like, what, seven years old? Um, yeah, I, th I, I was either eight or nine when I first saw this, so you being seven or eight is about right, and it has never left our rotation. We have watched it at least once a year between then and now. Yep. A couple of years ago, I showed it to one of my friends who missed out on watching it when we were children and was just like, so this movie will explain a lot of who I am as a person. I, I really ingested this very deeply when I was a child. And, you know, she watched the movie and she was like, oh, yes, yes, I very much see you all over this. There's a period of at least a couple of months where you're just flat out dressing like Wednesday. Yeah, I had one outfit by coincidence that kind of looked, it was actually like a jumper skirt set thing, but it had, it was all black and it had a white collar and I even made mom braid my hair and I was trying very hard to imitate Wednesday for like a full summer. And before we get into the plot of the film, I thought it would be handy to get into the background of the characters. They are the brainchild of New Yorker cartoonist Charles Adams, who debuted them in 1938. Now, if you're familiar with the New Yorker in terms of comics, you're aware that it is not necessarily the place where the single gag cartoon originated. That's a preposterous thing to say, but it, it is one of the forces that helped popularize it. And Adams in particular was is one of the most beloved uh, practitioners of that particular medium. Both Gahan Wilson and Gary Larson uh, ripped him off quite a bit. And Adams is distinct from other great New Yorker cartoonists in his focus on 
Gallo's humor. He was very impressed by the crumbling Gilded Age architecture of his North New Jersey childhood, which had a big part in how he designed the Adams Family. If you are familiar with those New Yorker cartoons, you know that the characters do not have names or backstories and weren't developed in any way at all. They're just this aristocratic family who are enchanted by the macabre and completely oblivious to how other people perceive them as weird and how that is off-putting. They're just sort of gliding through life, loving their spooky garbage. And that's very endearing, and you can build a series around that, especially single-panel gag cartoons. The first peak of the Adams Family was when they were adapted into a 1964 TV series that had 64 episodes produced over two seasons. This is when the characters were given names and their backstories. However, during this period, New Yorker editor William Sean refused to publish Adams Family cartoons because he believed that the New Yorker was refined and that TV is lowbrow and that it would lessen the New Yorker if this Adams Family showed up. John retired in 1967, and the Adams family were promptly brought right back in, and Adams kept drawing them until his death in 1988. Between then and the first film, there was a number of other attempts at bringing them to outside media. They next show up in a 1972 episode of the new Scooby-Doo movies. Uh, the following year, there was a TV variety show a la Sonny and Cher or that awkward Brady Bunch thing or the Simpsons parody as the Simpsons Smile Time Variety Hour. I was not aware of that. That sounds like, is that on YouTube? Can I look that up? That is on YouTube and you can look it up. Yeah. So yeah, there's an Adams Family version of that. That same year, there was an animated series, uh, which the family travels around and solves mysteries in a Victorian styled RV. This is the first incarnation that directly references Uncle Fester as Gomez's brother and Grandmama as Morticia's mother. There were 16 episodes produced by Hanna-Barbera between 1973 and 1975. Then there was also a one-off special, Halloween with the New Adams Family. Most of the TV cast returned for that, although John Astin kept voicing Gomez throughout. This involved Gomez and Morticia having two additional children named Wednesday Jr. and Pugsley Jr., which is weird. Yeah. And then there was the 1991 Barry Sonnenfeld film, which is the one immediately preceding this. And I'm not inclined to talk too much about that one, even though this film couldn't possibly exist without that one coming first and then making a whole lot of money based on a fairly modest budget. It's not a bad movie. I watched it recently. I thought I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, no, I mean, if Adam's Family Values hadn't have happened, you know, I'd be down with watching this one repeatedly, but Adam's Family Values did happen, and it's better. Yeah, it's better. We'll be talking about that more. But before we get into that, I'll just give you a recap of the plot in case you're a normal person and haven't watched this eight jillion times in the, over the past 25 years. All right, the film opens with Morticia abruptly announcing that she's going into labor. Uh, the resulting baby, Pubert, is targeted by the jealous Wednesday and Pugsley in a series of escalating murder attempts. This leads Morticia to hire Debbie Jelinski as a nanny. However, unbeknownst to them, Debbie is a serial killer who marries wealthy bachelors and then murders them to collect their inheritances. She has her eye on Uncle Fester, but Wednesday is suspicious. To keep her cover, Debbie tricks Gomez and Morticia into sending Wednesday and Pugsley to a summer camp. And at this point, the film diverges into two competing plots that just split back and forth between each other. Wednesday and Pugsley spend most of the movie at Camp Chippewa, managed by the perky Gary and Becky Granger. 
They are immediately singled out by the counselors and popular mean girl Amanda Buckman for their morbid appearance and unwillingness to conform. Their only ally at the camp seems to be Joel, a dorky bookworm who's instantly attracted to Wednesday. Although later on there are other misfits, but they only show up when it's convenient. Yeah, they're very much there because they need extras for the climactic battle sequence. More on that in a bit. Meanwhile, Debbie seduces Fester and quickly becomes engaged to him. After the wedding festivities, Debbie attempts to kill Fester by throwing a radio into a hot tub that he's soaking in. After this fails, because Fester is pretty resistant to electrical shocks, Debbie uses sex to manipulate Fester into cutting off all ties to his family. Morticia and Gomez show up at Fester and Debbie's mansion to plead with Fester, but are uh, promptly removed. They are then horrified to discover that Pubert has transformed into a blue-eyed, rosy-cheeked, giggling little cherub baby. Grandmama diagnoses this transformation as a response to the family's schism, sending Gomez into a crippling depression. At Camp Chippewa, Gary Granger pushes Wednesday into taking on the role of Pocahontas in his play about the first Thanksgiving. Upon her refusal, Wednesday, Pugsley, and Joel are forcibly sequestered in the camp's Harmony Hut and are forced to watch a succession of upbeat, family-friendly films until their minds are conditioned clockwork orange style. Wednesday emerges from the cabin with a forced smile and an eagerness to participate in the play. During the performance, Wednesday feigns compliance until Pocahontas' monologue. At that moment, she improvises a soliloquy about Native American genocide and oppression, culminating in an appeal for vengeance. At this moment, all of the camp's outsiders rise up to capture Gary, Becky, Amanda, and the popular kids. They then set Camp Chippewa ablaze and make their escape. Meanwhile, Debbie attempts to kill Fester again by blowing up their mansion. When he survives, she pulls a gun on him and reveals her true colors. Fortunately for Fester, Fing comes to the rescue and they drive off together. Fester apologizes to his family for his behavior, but Debbie interrupts by slipping in and ambushing them. After tying each family member to electric chairs, Debbie gives an impassioned speech rationalizing her homicidal actions, and naturally, the Adamses are very sympathetic towards this. As this goes on, Pubert slips out of his crib and, through a series of improbable events containing Rube Goldberg logic, winds up in the room where the family is being held. Debbie throws the switch for the electric chairs, but Pubert crosses the wires and sends the current back to Debbie, killing her. Months later, the family gathers to celebrate Pubert's first birthday. Fester is still saddened over the loss of Debbie, but is soon enchanted by Dementia, the new nanny for Cousin Id and Margaret's baby. In the Adams graveyard, Wednesday tells Joel that Debbie was a sloppy murderer and that she'd be more effective. When pressed to clarify how, Wednesday claims that she'd frighten her victim to death, teeing up a final gag where Thing jumps out of a grave to grab Joel. The last shot in the film is Joel screaming as Wednesday smiles wryly. And that's the film. Although I'm sure I left out plenty of little details that are currently driving Sylvan nuts, and Sylvan is eager to comment on them. Yeah, I, I've got a lot to say about this, but why don't we follow your note? Okay, let's talk about the production a little bit. First thing I want to talk about is the script, which is written by Paul Rudnick. It is his second feature film, although he has a lot of background in Broadway musical theater, which isn't surprising in the least. Yeah, no, I'm not shocked to hear that. Yeah, big musical geek. His other major film credits, besides co-writing the first Adams Family film, was Sister Act and The First Wise Club. While working on the original film with his collaborators, he kept noticing how um, they had a hard time settling on something. For example, there was a big debate over whether or not Fester should be the genuine Fester or, or not. They ended up deciding at the last minute, which I believe readily after watching that film. He felt a little blessed because there wasn't, like, big studio executives coming in and giving him notes or telling him that it wasn't appropriate to have something 
in this film that they are clearly going to market the families. Like, no one ever said, you can't toss a baby off the roof. Rudnick believed that Christina Ricci was the breakout character in the first film, and he pushed to give her a bigger role in the second one. Yeah, good move. He was absolutely not wrong. His favorite scene in the film is Wednesday's fake smile after uh, leaving the Harmony Hut. That is a wonderful moment. He was always just thrilled that he wrote scenes like, oh, uh, Gomez and Morticia ballroom dance and like throw knives at each other and Gomez catches it in its teeth. And then, holy crap, this is really happening in front of me. Like he was still new enough to the game where that just kind of blew him away. Barry Sonnenfeld's direction, he's also new to this. This is only a second feature film. His first was The Addams Family. Although he was an experienced cinematographer with a lot of background in visual comedy, once again, not terribly surprising. Prior efforts as a cinematographer were Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, Throw Mama from the Train, Big, and When Harry Met Sally. He gave very few notes to the cast. His uh, central focus was on lighting effects and uh, choreographing the musical numbers, set pieces, and slapstick routines. It was very important to him that the musical numbers were funny. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see why the emphasis on, like, sight gags and moments like that appealed to me, because we were raised on a healthy background of Looney Tunes, and, you know, transfers over. I I read a very nice oral history of the Adams Family Values that included most of the cast, and basically all of them, in a variety of ways, said, yeah, Sonnenfeld didn't give me any notes. He was just like, great job, keep going. I guess there's a certain amount of freedom in that. According to Rudnick, he believed that uh, Sonnenfeld really trusted his actors. He thought he got a really good cast together. He thought they played off each other really well. He was a bit more involved in later films, particularly Men in Black. But um, yeah, he's just like, I have Raul, Julia, and Angelica Huston. They, they know what to do. However, he relied very heavily on uh, producer Scott Rudin. Huston compared it to having two directors on set, but that they collaborated so seamlessly that it was tough to see what decision came from where. The film's title is a direct reference to a speech by professional stupid asshole Dan Quayle blaming the 1992 Los Angeles riots over the Rodney King verdict on a breakdown in traditional family values. Rudnick read that speech and he's just like, gonna write this into the Adams family. Gonna make that part of the subtext. Fuck this guy. More on that later. <laughs> The summer camp sequence was shot at Sequoia National Park in the Sierra Nevada of California. Incidentally, this is very close to Angelica Huston's house, and during those sequences, uh, Raul Julia stayed with her and her new husband. You know, Raul Julia would just hang out with Huston's new husband, and they just smoke cigars and talk Spanish with him, and apparently at night, They'd all have too much wine, and Julia would serenade the bullfrogs in the pond next to their house with operatic arias, and Huston apparently very deeply cherishes this memory. Yeah, that, uh, that sounds like pretty much perfect. You know, I could, I could see getting into that. Uh, I looked this up. Uh, Camp Chippewa. Chippewa doesn't mean orphan, unsurprisingly. I, you know, I bumped into... Chippewa, obviously, uh, at a later point in college, I think I was, I did a a project on um, indigenous people in museum culture. And I was like, oh, that was just a gag. Yeah, it literally translates to First Nation. Mm. (laughs) uh, The Thanksgiving play was the longest and most elaborate set piece to do. It took two full weeks to uh, to shoot that, which is odd because 
This film is not short on elaborate set pieces, but apparently that one beats the mansion blowing up or Thing going through the house or Puber doing his Rube Goldberg comedy gag bits. Those were all apparently easier than the than the Chippewa play. Well, there was a lot of people involved in the Chippewa play. I'm sure that complicated things. Yeah, plenty of extras in that. For the soundtrack, they approached Michael Jackson and got him to commit to writing a song for it, but then there were contractual disputes, and also this is when the child abuse allegations started popping up, and Jackson ended up backing away. A lot of people have theorized that that little gag where Joel reacts in horror to the Michael Jackson poster is a little dig at him. The song he wrote was called Is It Scary, and he uh, it eventually wound up on Jackson's 1997 album Blood on the Dance Floor. It's okay. More on this movie's crappy, crappy soundtrack later. <laughs> it's not a real 90s family movie unless there's a really awkward pop song going with the credits. Another reference to the film is that in the Harmony Hut sequence, you know, where the kids are being tortured by family-friendly films, one of the um, excerpts is from Annie, Specifically, the 1982 version directed by John Huston, Angelica's father. Well, let's just get into the cast. All right, first thing to talk about. Sylvan's excited. Uh, Raul Julia as Gomez. All right. Perfection, yes. Julia is one of cinema's all-time greatest hams. One of the numerous cameos in this film is Nathan Lane playing a desk cop, and there's a part where Julia and Lane are, like, shouting at each other. And maybe because he's only doing a cameo, but... Nathan Lane doesn't even try to out-hammer old Julia. Yeah, I mean, because it's who he is, it comes out a little bit, but... Yeah, he can't help... He's not exactly a full straight man in the scene, but it's the closest he's probably ever come. Yeah, and Nathan Lane has tried to out-ham Robin Williams, so it's saying something that he buckles under the power of Raul Julia in this. There are sad aspects of it. Uh, Huston noted that... Julia was already visibly sick on set, and he lost a lot of weight, and the costumers had to sort of work around that, and she wasn't surprised when it turned out that he died less than a year later. More humorously, apparently one night in between shootings, his eye popped out at a bar, he was just hanging out with some rock star guy, and his eye fell out, as in it was dangling on his chest, and all he did was pick his eyeball up, squeeze it back into his head, and then he showed up next day with his bloodshot eye, and everybody was like, what happened to you? And he was like, what are you talking about? I can still see out of it. Because Raul Julia's a pro, and he never misses a day on set. And possibly just actually was Gomez. Like, that is a very Adams thing to do, I feel. Huston responded to this by calling up every joke shop she could find and buying those gag glasses with the springy eyeballs on them. And just had everyone in the cast and crew put them on and surprise him on set one day. And he apparently laughed his ass off. Which is also a very Gomez thing. See, this is why the cast is so perfect and they work so well. They just were the characters. Uh, next person to talk about is uh, Angelica uh, Houston is Morticia. A number of people in the oral history to talk about going through hours of makeup. She had to be sewn into her gown. I believe it. Also, when you're watching the film, you should notice that she never turns her neck. She has to turn by her waist, because if she turns with her neck, then her hair will split over her shoulder, and they need to redo the shot. 
I also noticed you said that there was a, a provision that she had to be lit a certain way, like the key light over her eyes stands out a lot in, throughout the movie. Yes, because she was lit terribly in some earlier films, she fought hard to get contractual oversight over her lighting, and she wanted a key light for every scene just so she could know where her light was coming from. And Sonnenfeld decided to constrain the key light to the point where it was like envelope shaped, and it is very noticeably on her face the whole time in order to give off like a German expressionist vibe. Uh, a similar effect was used on Faye Dunaway in 1981's Mommy Dearest. Huston felt that this added gravitas to the gothic aura of Morticia and was very fond of it. I can see where they're coming from. Once again, Sonnenfeld focused a lot on lighting effects. He was very invested in having subtle perspectives and lighting uh, undersell the gag while it's going on. You can definitely see that in Men in Black, although not as obviously. Uh, next up, uh, Christopher Lloyd is Fester, and it, it, it's hard to imagine it in this landscape where people are more focused on Gomez and Morticia, who were never really the focus of either movie, which is a little weird considering just how saturated with awesomeness both of those actors are. When we were kids, Fester was considered the main character. When the Addams Family got the crappy Nintendo video game adaptation, you're playing as Fester. Hated that video game, but I, I always wanted to play it anyway because I thought maybe this time it will be fun. It wasn't. No, it was not. That being said, Christopher Lloyd is a fantastic character actor, and he, he gives a very good performance in this film. Oh, he's very lovable as Fester. Um, the oblivious spirit of the Adams family is really very clearly depicted in him. And, like, the oblivious good-naturedness, too, because uh, Debbie ain't subtle. Yeah, he, he plays off Cusack very well. He plays off Julia fantastically. That was another thing that Rudnick really wanted to emphasize. Not just a relationship between the family members, but Gomez and Fester as siblings. He thought that that would be a good way to flesh out Fester and make him seem like less of an awkward pervert, even though he's still definitely that. Yeah, yeah, lovably awkward pervert. That doesn't, that doesn't usually work. All right, and then Christina Ricci as Wednesday. I'd have no notes here. I figured you'd supply those. <laughs> oh, jeez, what can I say here? Um, I don't know. She's just, it was very aspirational for me watching this movie. This was a character who was a little bit older than me, but roughly the same age. I still thought I was a girl back then. And her independence, like her ability to always kind of come out on top even when she was thrust into situations where she had no control like being at the summer camp and still making it work and having her core sense of self and it, there was just a lot that I admired about her. Uh, Rodnick specifically said when he was writing the script that he wanted Wednesday to be a, a, a kid character who doesn't knuckle under arbitrary adult authority and he felt that children who watched the film would really connect to that. Yeah, yeah, just a smidge. <laughs> Ricci uh, expressed that she was mostly flattered that they gave her a bigger part. She was only 12 at the time while they were making the film, so movies were still fairly new to her. She talked about how the, the, the worst scenes were the love scenes with uh, David Krumholtz as Joel. Uh, she got on well with him. They were both sarcastic teenagers, so, you know, they were pals, but... They didn't have much kissy-kissy experience in their real life, so they just kind of wanted to do the scene and get it done with. And whereas that comes through, it also, like, works for the tone. Their discomfort makes it feel more authentic, I feel like. 
Also, Richie complained that, that the hair on his upper lip was really itchy. <laughs> but, like, yeah, they're supposed to be, like, 11, 12, like they talk about the sixth grade. No, nobody's actually suave at that age. More on Richie a bit in uh, Wednesday a bit when we get to the thematic parts, but next character I want to talk about is Carol Struckian as Lurch, who is a fairly minor character, but I just thought it was amusing. In the oral history, he talks about how leading up to that as a minor character actor, he was always confused with Ted Cassidy, who played Lurch in the TV show. Like, people would stop him in the grocery store and get mad at him when he said that he wasn't Lurch. So he didn't even audition for this film. They picked him. <laughs> and apparently his conversation with Sonnenfeld, he related the Lurch grocery store story. And he's like, well, you're in the film now, so you can just be Lurch now. You can say, yes, I am Lurch. Thanks for noticing me. <laughs> and uh, he got on well there because Sonnenfeld uses him as a minor character in Men in Black. It's a blink and you'll miss a cameo. He's, he's one of the aliens who's carrying the, the, the universe. Not the not the guy with the alien in his head, the you know, tall dude next to him. And with that, we have uh, Jimmy Workman as Pugsley, who is, I think, kind of underrated, because when you talk about the child performances in this, it's mostly Ricci, and Pugsley doesn't have as much to do, but he's... He does what he needs to do very well. Yeah, uh, Workman didn't have as many roles after this. He did a couple of other smaller parts afterwards, but now mostly seems to work in uh, the technical side of it. He's also apparently the uh, president of his Teamsters union. So he's doing okay. Good for him. All right, uh, next up, Carol Kane is Grandmama. She she replaced Judith Molina, who played Grandmama in the first one. And not to knock her, but she didn't get really much to do and... There wasn't really much presence in the first one, as opposed to Carol Kane, or just Carol Kane's all over the place here. Yeah, the the curse scene was a favorite of mine when I was a kid. Kane said that she felt a bit awkward when she first came on the set, because everybody else had been in the first one, but she had already collaborated in pre- previous films with uh, Christopher Lloyd and, and Angelica Huston, and there was a very easy rapport with Julia because he's just you know, like a consummate pro. So she felt at home almost straight away. Although she wasn't crazy about needing four hours of makeup in order to look ancient. She's only a year younger than Huston. And uh, she complained that her wig weighed five pounds. Also, she had a prosthetic allergy stemming from her performance in The Princess Bride and tried to fight tooth and nail to keep prosthetics from being applied, but ended up losing out. She said the lamest part of it is she, she just got new dogs, so they would just jump up and lick her face and lick plastic instead, and then there's, they got confused. All right, and then Joan Cusack as Debbie. Woo! Sadly, Cusack did not participate in the oral history, so... And I would have loved to hear her talk about playing Debbie Jelinski, but maybe it was just another role for her. She was in and out, didn't really have anything to say, or maybe she was busy. But yeah, she sells the hell out of her her part here. She's fantastic in this. It's hard to imagine because most of the people that in my social circle are more familiar with her brother, you know, from romantic comedies and teen dramas and stuff like that and they see him as like the the cute person that they crushed on in high school and it's like what are you talking about joan cusack is way better looking than her brother (laughs) and also that is how our family thinks of it he is joan cusack's brother like not she is john cusack's sister and you can tell that she has a lot of improv background there's a lot of theater geek energy in her performance here Nobody hams it up more than Raul Julia, but there are certain scenes where Cusack gives him a run for his money. 
I love the part where she's like really forming her evil plan in the graveyard with Fester after the date, and Fester is just like she has to, you know, re like strategize every other sentence because Fester is not catching her drift, and so but she's pressing on and just like, okay, what if I say it this way? That was a weird response from him. Okay, let me try again. And she just sells that part so well. She gives a real good evil smile. Yes, she does. Not to press into this too much, but one of those, hey, which fictional character made you realize that you were a little bit gay? Debbie's on your list. Yeah, yeah. I got very distracted by her low-cut dresses. Yeah, particularly that peach one that she's wearing in the proposal scene. Yep. Not to overpress this, but she fills it out very nicely. Mm -hmm. Once again, Joan is cuter than John and more talented than John. (laughs) Also, when she goes all uh, crazy uh, at the end with the shotgun and her eye makeup is suddenly goth out of nowhere, that was another part that did it for me. Side note, there are a lot of memes about the Adams family and my particular social media bubble. More on that later. But one that I thought was particularly pertinent for me was that... They reference an episode of the TV show where Gomez and Morticia aren't sure which of them is related to Grandmama. It implies that she's sort of this con artist who just shows up and they just sort of accept her. And it's like, Debbie could have been that. She could have just shown up and then three weeks later the Adamses would have just acted like she had always been there. She'd be Auntie Filchy or something. Yeah, yeah, she um, didn't need to go quite as hard as she did. Uh, In addition to the main cast, there are cameos from David Hyde Pierce. He's the delivery doctor. Uh, Tony Shalhoub is one of the sailors that Debbie sings Macho Man uh, with as the mansion blows up. Sonnenfeld himself is Joel's father. And Cynthia Nixon of Sex and the City fame is one of the nanny auditions. Reception of the film. It got good reviews. It was much better received than the prior film. Just about every critic said that it furthered and expanded upon the preceding Adams Family film. However, it was a financial flop. It had a budget of $47 million. It made 48.9. Yeah, it barely made its budget back. It did get a couple of award nominations. It got an Oscar nod for art direction, lost the Schindler's List. Huston got a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy. It won a Golden Raspberry for Worst Song for the Tag Team's Adams Family remix of Whoop, There It Is. I was about to be like, hey, and then you... Finished the sentence and fair. Yeah, despite the fact that we watch this movie once a year, we're always unpleasantly surprised when the <laughs> Adams family whoop, there it is, starts playing on the end credits. And then we shut it off. It's the most dated aspect of the film. And while I have talked about how I think the golden raspberries are kind of bullshit, and I'm wavering on whether or not to mention them whenever a film I talk about in this show gets nominated. The Adams Family remix of Whoop, There It Is is a terrible fucking song that deserved to win its raspberry. Yep. It apparently was on the short list for uh, the American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Laughs, the funniest movies produced during the initial uh, 100 years of American filmmaking. It didn't, didn't wind up being on that list, but apparently they considered it, which I was surprised by. And uh, in 2016, Playboy published an article, uh, 15 sequels that are way better than the originals, and Adam's Family just made the cutoff. It was number 15. All right, and with that out of the way, let's talk about the themes. All right, first thing, the power fantasy of children who don't knuckle under arbitrary adult authority, which Lindsay Ellis, who I reference quite a bit on this show, 
one of her earliest things when she was still the nostalgia chick, she talked about the Adams Family films, which she didn't think much of, and she thought even less of Adams Family values. But she mentioned the Chippewa sequences is basically the only reason that people remember this film, which does not apply to my circle, but might be fair overall. And yeah, the Wednesday Pugsley stuff is kind of the highlight of the film. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this was a movie that we had on in the background so often when we were growing up, but then like we'd all actually stop whatever we were doing and pay attention for the typical parts. And on a previous episode for uh, Matilda, I touched briefly upon adolescent preteen girls who were kind of power fantasies in the way that, say, um, Superman or He-Man or uh, James Bond are for adolescent boys, just characters who stand up and assert themselves over environments that are often demeaning towards uh, femininity in general, especially exceptional femininity. And Matilda's one, uh, I compared her to Lisa Simpson and Daria Morgendorfer. Wednesday's definitely on that list. Oh, absolutely. The next thing I want to talk about is the recent reappraisal of Gomez and Morticia just being like relationship goals and how they transcend the married couple sitcom tropes because it's starting to calcify and cliche at this point that, you know, you shouldn't be Joker or Harley Quinn, God forbid. I don't know. Is there anyone who actually wants that? Sadly, there does seem to be people. But yeah, Gomez and Morticia, unlike, say, fat guy with hot wife show version 804 they're frisky they're totally into each other they're banging hourly they're still loving they plead each other they adore each other they're on the same team whenever disputes with the children comes up but they are also actively involved in their children's interests it's astonishing how many family sitcoms there are where the parents don't seem to be involved in what the kids are up to I mean, the, the Rugrats would be like the polar opposite example here of sometimes even forgetting they have children. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is Everybody Loves Raymond. We're like, oh, right, they have kids. Um, yeah, I also think of Gomez and Morticia as kind of a counterpoint to like the cliche in queer communities. Like, are the straights okay? Are the cishets okay? Like, it's a big thing where heterosexual couples of a certain age seem to be like ashamed to admit that they like their partners and choose to be with them. So Gomez and Morticia are a refreshing variant from that. Yeah, the the patient zero for the family sitcom, uh, the one that basically all of them are tumbling out of is the Honeymooners, where they're at each other's throats. One of the catchphrases is bang, zoom, straight to the moon. He's going to punch his wife so hard that she flies into space. I Love Lucy, it's not quite on that level, but most of the episodes are Lucy and Ricky trying to pull one out from under each other. And yeah, if you look at those foundational sitcoms in the first like decade and a half of the family sitcom, the Adams Family are an anomaly in that, even compared to, say, the Munsters. And they do get claimed by the queer community quite often. You mentioned that before. Um, I saw, like saying in social media circles constantly going around about this i saw one the other night that was going so far as to claim them as uh trans even and uh, putting forth that headcanon because gomez and morticia do kind of have the aesthetics of a sort of stereotypical trans couple a lot of uh, trans women definitely go for the gothy witch aesthetic and then like the mustache and the jackets and stuff are very trans dude-ish and it also explains the height disparity 
And what keeps coming up in mean, the Adams family that queer people seem to relate to so much is that while the Adamses are very different and willfully weird and nonconformist, they are not like bitter about it. They welcome their the, the, the straights into their home and treat them like equals. Sometimes, you know, the, the whole obliviousness of the Charles Adams cartoon translates to the sitcom version and the film version. I'm thinking specifically of a scene where John Astin uh, approaches two guys who just robbed a bank and are looking to hide out. He has no idea what their, what, what their motives are, but he's like, hi, come into my house, hang out, have a drink. Hey, want me to check your bag for you? Oh, you don't. I'm thinking of the, the first Adams Family movie where Wednesday's teacher is talking to uh, Morticia about, you know, the heroes thing and she's showing off what the other children have done for the project. And Morticia is like, are you speaking with their parents? That's another good example of like, you know, she doesn't really realize what's wrong, but she still wants to help. Yeah, they're not going to change for you, but they don't expect you to change for them either. Those are terms you can live by, can't you, straights? Can't you? Say you can. <laughs> uh, yeah, one quote that I picked specifically out of the oral history uh, by Rudnick is when he was explaining more uh, of the title, which, you know, most of the actors are like, I don't see the film being all that transgressive politically, except for the Chippewa bit. That one's not subtle. But Rudnick specifically said, I wanted the movie's name to be a response to the Republican Party's constant harping on family values, as if only conservatives could define a loving family. In Republican terms, family values is always code for censorship and exclusion, and Republicans still refuse to respect or even acknowledge, for example, LGBTQ families. I like to believe that the Adams family is far more loving and accepting than their enemies. In case you were wondering if the people who make the film are on the same page as the queer people who love this film, yeah, they are. <sighs> I have to talk about this at least a little bit. Historical revisionism about Native American genocide, which is just in the third act of the film. I think that it's uh, it's laid on there very plainly. Uh, not only is Granger's film cliched every, and uh, forced and not well thought out and all the things Wednesday says about it, it's also, also willfully historically anachronistic. That was I, the I, first thing that bothered me when I was a kid and made me feel extra satisfied about the fire was just the basic historical inaccuracies. Yeah, Pocahontas isn't Wampanoag, everybody. <laughs> also... The They're Chippewa. Just like Plains Indians. The Chippewa and... are not Wampanoag. Yeah, no message of, uh, uh, no uh, mention of Massachusetts in there at all, is there? It always bugged us, massholes, that we are. <laughs> Those Californians wouldn't acknowledge that the first Thanksgiving uh, happened here, if you count the Plymouth one as the first Thanksgiving. And, you know, just the, the whole taking this one feel-good story and isolating it and using it as an excuse to wallpaper over how less than a couple of decades later the genocide would arrive in full force in the Massachusetts Bay uh, Colony and was still perpetuated in the other colonies, especially the Spanish ones. This film came out when I was around eight or nine, and I was already starting to struggle with the mythos of the first Thanksgiving, with the historical actuality of it, that this is very much trying to whitewash. And I latched onto this scene, and I'm sure a lot of people my age with my disposition did so as well in addition to it being like a satisfying fantasy there's an element of like could we have made something like this happen like 
All right. Well, that's everything in my notes. I'm sure there are plenty of other things that you could talk about, about Adam's family values. We could record an episode that is longer than the film itself, although I don't think we should. Uh, any closing remarks? Actually, what I think is an important theme in the movie is Wednesday's desire to remain unpartnered. Like, she is given a romantic interest, and she's very resistant to it, which is why you mentioning earlier that um, the awkwardness between the actors about having to do romance scenes, I think, plays particularly well, because... Wednesday kind of seems annoyed with herself that she's crushing back. And then the movie ends with her, you know, rejecting the expectation that she's going to pair off and get married and have kids and do what her mother did because she kills her love interest and chooses to remain single. And I thought that was that was a message that I had a hard time with when I was a kid because all of the media that we saw was so, if it was geared towards girls especially, it was so focused on, no, your your whole like reason to exist is to get married and to have kids. This and I think The Last Unicorn were like the only movies that I really liked where I was like, huh, there's a love story, kind of. And then like, it doesn't end happily, and then the person is single. But in The Last Unicorn, she's sad about it. In The Addams Family, she's very satisfied. Yeah, I think it's worth noting that there's a whole lot of messages these days that the whole you complete me, you need a soulmate is a bit on the toxic side, although that word has started to calcify into cliche as well. The idea that you can't function as a person on your own is sort of a hotbed for codependency and that your best odds of engaging in a fulfilling, loving, mutually beneficial relationship is to be the type of person who can function on their own without having somebody to fill out the parts of their persona that they can't do. You should be able to enter into a relationship as a, an entire being and then become part of that unit. And that is the best way for you to contribute to the uh, to that unit. And while Adam's Family Values doesn't do that, it uh, it is definitely calling bullshit on the whole your function in life is to find another person and then to spawn with them. Yeah, I think it's a big theme of the movie because, I mean, Fester's really hung up on his loneliness and comparing his life to his brothers and the jealousy there leads him into the path of a very obvious serial killer. Yeah, that bit too. I, I feel that we might have undersold the fester aspect of this. We mostly talked about, you know, Gomez and Morticia and uh, Wednesday, but you know, fester takes up a good chunk of this movie. Yeah. He's not just there to give Debbie stuff to do. Yeah, and his neediness is might be one of the most dynamic character arcs in this film. Fester is a different character on the other side of this. He he finally figures out how to just be happy being Fester, and then Dementia comes along, and it's implied that th this one's going to work out. Not only is Dementia more compatible, but Fester is better able to handle a relationship because of what he experienced with Debbie. Yeah, he makes moves on uh, dementia on his own without having to go to his brother for help. He's clearly grown and become a more independent person. Hooray, so that. Also, you disputed whether or not the hand coming out at Joel is things because, you know, it's longer and has hair on it. Yeah, it looks more like um, how Thing looked in the sitcom, but it doesn't look like how Thing looks in the movie. Two things I wanted to bring up. Pubert, the name of the baby. That was supposed to be Pugsley's name in the sitcom, but the network slapped it away saying it was too grotesque. 
Rudnick you put it in there as a nod to Charles Adams. Nice. And the other thing I wanted to bring up was that uh, apparently for a prospective third film that never got made, not only because this one flopped, but also Raul Julia passed away and there was no way they were making another one without him. They were kicking around the idea of John Aston coming back to play Grandpapa, and he did in a later iteration of the uh, live-action Adams Family, the one that ran on Fox Family. Out of all the numerous tragic elements of Raul Julia leaving us too young is that we never got to see him play off John Aston because that would have been delightful. Yeah, I wouldn't mind going to the alternate timeline where that got to happen. Okay, and I believe that's it. So, all right, good episode. This one's meaningful for us. I hope I did it justice. Uh, see you next time. <laughs>